Hey, fan club members, it's me, your host, Lainey, and I wanted to thank you for a tremendous 2020. Your support has been so special and so great to have over this really crazy year we've all had. My hope is that in 2021, everything changes for the better for all of us. To those struggling or having a really difficult time, please know my thoughts are with you. And I know that it can be hard, but just hang on. We are almost to the finish line. To the team behind the scenes at True Crime Fan Club, they are also so thankful for your support and for the positive messages you send their way when you're happy with an episode they've done. I could not do what I do now without this team. And this is going to be the official announcement of our holiday break. We will be back with new episodes in January, and we can't wait to see you again. So make sure you keep up with us on social media and make sure you say hey. I hope everyone has a happy and safe holiday and a really, really, really great new year. Hopefully 2021 surprises us with how great it's going to be. But I don't want to jinx us, so let's get to the episode. Explicit content is found in this episode. So, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. A young woman who received notoriety as a teenager, as being the center of poltergeist activity, grew up to receive notoriety of another kind. When her young daughter dies under mysterious circumstances, she is arrested and charged with her death. Her prosecution has been shrouded in controversy and she has supporters all across the world. Will we ever know what really happened to Tina's daughter? Okay, on to the show. In March 1984, a Lutheran family in Columbus, Ohio, had a startling story to tell. On March 3rd, all the lights in the house seemed to turn on at the same time. The dial on the washer started spinning rapidly on its own. Water faucets turned on by themselves, and the clocks began rushing past the hours. Joan Resch, mother of six and longtime foster mother, gathered up the children in her house and sat waiting for her husband to come home from the vet. When John returned home, she told him what happened and his reaction was to contact the power company. When the employees from the power company arrived, they found nothing and left. Almost immediately, the strange happenings began again, so John called a friend who was an electrician. Once the electrician arrived, he thought something was going on with the switch box, but could not find anything wrong. Lights continued to come on independently with no one around. At one point, The garbage disposal started with no one in sight. The electrician taped down all of the light switches, but the lights came back on and the tape disappeared. In the middle of his examination, John and Joan had to leave to pick up the family dog. The electrician felt something off about their daughter, 14-year-old Tina, so he made her stay by his side the entire time he examined the house. The only other people in the house at the time were small children, all under the age of five. He continued walking through the house, taping down light switches, only to find the lights had mysteriously turned on anyway, and the tape had again disappeared. When the electrician left, even more strange occurrences began happening. 
placemats soared through the air as if they were paper airplanes. Dining room chairs moved of their own accord, and an end table tipped over and began rolling over and over. Finally, John became alarmed when a champagne flute flew out of the dining room, crashed landing into the kitchen stove. The rushes called the police. Two officers responded, even drawing their sidearms at one point. One officer was a believer in the supernatural and told Joan as he was leaving, if these things keep happening, you're probably going to need more help than the police department. The next day, a Sunday, the activity resumed. Joan later told reporters that a dining room chair chased Tina through the house. Candles flew through the house and pictures rocked on the walls until some of them fell. The next day, the foster children were removed from the home for their own safety until an investigation could be completed on the odd occurrences. Joan called various people at Ohio State University looking for assistance and advice but found none. She finally called Mike Harden, who was a reporter at the Columbus Dispatch. Mike had written an article on John and Joan before about fostering children. Mike went to the Rush home to see these activities for himself. Not a real believer in supernatural activity, he later insisted he had seen unexplained things in the Rush household, including a mug of coffee dumping into Tina's lap on its own and a phone receiver flying across the room unaided. Mike contacted a photographer who attempted to capture some of these strange events on film, set the shutter speed for action, and waited. He did not have to wait long, and within seconds, a phone receiver flew in front of Tina, sitting in a chair, open mouth, holding a different phone. The photo was picked up by the Associated Press, and soon the Columbus poltergeist was a nationwide story. Mike suggested the Rush family call a press conference later in the week to address these events and more than 30 reporters crammed into their living room. In the pre-internet age, this story still went viral. The Lutheran minister of their church came to bless the house. Mormon elders came to pray with Tina, but the activities continued. Tom and Diane tonight, coming up next, the massive pileup on I-71. And we're going to go to the home of Tina Resch, the 14-year-old who feels like the movie Poltergeist is happening to her. Channel 4, Columbus, Ohio. A 14-year-old Columbus girl who was abandoned at Children's Hospital when she was just 10 months old is tonight being talked about by people all over the country. The home of Tina Resch and her adopted family has become for them a house of horror. Drinking glasses are flying out of the cupboards. Chairs are spinning. Eggs are flying out of the refrigerator. Uh, this is uh, what witnesses describe seeing. Yeah. Sounds so hard to believe, doesn't it? Like, like a happening out of that movie, Poltergeist. Our Martha Sharon is just back from a news conference at the Rush's home, and I guess we have a question for you. <laughs> I'm not sure it's safe to even sit close to you. Did you see anything at all? No, actually, it was a little disappointing because I personally didn't witness anything, and that doesn't mean that things don't go on in the house, but I didn't see anything, and so if the force is there, it was not performing when I was there. It's called psychokinesis, a phenomenon that allows people to unconsciously move things around. Now there are about a half dozen cases like this reported each year. Most involve teenagers. The average age is 14. It's more prevalent in girls than in boys and in teenagers who are trying to deal with some kind of a pressure or tension. And Tina fits all these categories. 
Christina is adopted, and for nearly two years now, she has tried to find her natural mother. She says she feels frustrated, anxious, and this may be the stress, the pent-up tension experts say triggers books to fly off the shelves, pictures to fly off walls. But for now, Tina can't explain it. I don't know what I think. I don't know. All this psychokinetic activity started Saturday night at the dinner table. At first, it just things were just going on and off, and then it seemed as though there were power surges causing it. And, and then we went around and took switches and turned the lights off and taped them down even, and they would come loose and turn on. No one was around. The garbage disposal would turn on and off. Even unplugged appliances turned on. And the interesting thing about it is that when Tina is not in the house, everything goes back to normal. Tina is staying with friends for the time being. She's moved out of her room. But the minute she walks back into the house, watch out. We've hid pictures. We've packed up stuff and put it in the basement and tried to eliminate a lot of the problems we were having at first. But they still are happening once Tina comes in the house. So nothing has worked. The house has even been blessed by the Risha's minister. But the energy, the power, the force, whatever and however you want to explain it, it's still there. The next step for the Risha's are going to get some professional help. And from everything that I've read and heard, she may just outgrow this. Although her parents are saying that they're starting to get used to the furniture moving around and things changing. No one has been injured yet by anything flying. You believe it? In many ways, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's possible. She's covered yeah. other stories like that. The activities had attracted the attention of a group of researchers looking to debunk the claims. This group, called the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, was based in Buffalo, New York, and included the Amazing Randy, a magician. The Amazing Randy was the stage name of James Randy, who offered payment to anyone who could provide proof that the events in the home were based on the supernatural. John and Joan refused to allow the Amazing Randy into their homes, stating they did not need a magic show. To support their claims that this was a hoax, the committee pointed to a video which had inadvertently caught Tina pulling a lamp onto her lap. She feigned surprise for the cameras. The next day, when she was asked about it, Tina just said she had faked that one incident to get the press to leave. However, Bill Roll, a parapsychologist, was extremely interested in the activity surrounding Tina and also arrived in Columbus to assist the Rush family. He had been researching poltergeists for nearly three decades at this point and quickly said the poltergeist in the Rush home was in Tina's mind. He claimed Tina had recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, which was common in adolescents who were under stress and going through puberty. Tina had been taken in by John and Joan when she was just under a year old, having been abandoned by her birth mother. John and Joan had been foster parents for quite some time, and by the time they finished, they had fostered around 250 children. Tina was one of the two they had adopted. Nearly three years before the supernatural events began, Tina was pulled out of school by her parents and homeschooled. Part of this could be the fact that Tina was eventually diagnosed with Tourette's, which manifested in her school life when she would spout obscenities in class. Tina also wanted to find her biological parents, but her adoptive parents were resistant. At the age of 12, about the time she was pulled out of school, Tina's adoptive brother started molesting her. She told her parents, but they refused to believe her, and she was slapped in the face. According to Tina, she was regularly beaten by her father. 
she was also diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, and prescribed Ritalin, but this did not help. All these culminated into what Bill Rule claimed was psychic abilities. Bill Rule moved into the Rush home to observe Tina around the clock, recording her every movement and sound. Eventually, he took her to North Carolina to the Psychical Research Institute in Chapel Hill, where he and his colleagues could run various tests. Tina was ecstatic about this because her home life had become unbearable. She later said her father was no longer speaking to her, and all she and her mother did was fight. One of Bill's colleagues, Jeannie Lagle, became close with Tina and remains in contact with her to this day. Jeannie allegedly witnessed remarkable events such as a hairbrush flying out of her purse, although Tina was across the room. Jeannie told writer Lauren Markham, you just couldn't believe that this little girl was capable of. Eventually, Tina had to return to her parents' home in Ohio. Not long after she returned home, her parents decided to sell their home due to unwanted attention and consternation from their neighbors. Unfortunately, her adoptive parents did not want to take her with them to their new home, and Tina was in danger of being put back into the foster system. To avoid this fate, she eloped with John Bennett when she was 16. John was abusive to her, tying her up, gagging her, and raping her. He beat her until she was unconscious, and then he burned her clothes so she could not leave. She finally jumped out of a second-floor window and a t-shirt and shorts and ran through the snow barefoot to get to safety. He found her and forced her to return home. She finally was able to leave for good, but became pregnant not long after. She married another man and took his last name, Boyer. He promised to be a dad to her baby, Amber, but before long, the pattern of abuse began again. Child Protective Services warned Tina if she did not leave, they would take Amber from her. Christina, as she was now known, finally had him arrested and fled to Carroll County, Georgia. She settled in this area because Bill and Jeannie had moved there. The study of Christina resumed, but once again, she found herself embroiled in conflict. Bill and Jeannie had worked together for years, particularly on the study of Christina, but Jeannie found out Bill had started edging her out, presenting at conferences without telling her, and writing his own book on Christina. Jeannie proposed to Christina that they collaborate on their own book. Christina eagerly said yes, hoping they could write enough to get an advance. To help the struggling young mother, Jeannie paid her $5 an hour to type research notes for the project. Joan was in contact with Christina and had even sent an Easter dress to Amber in April 1992. Christina was dating a new man, David Heron, who had a daughter Amber's age. On April 10th, David dropped Christina off at work and took Amber and his daughter back to his trailer. When he returned, Christina noticed Amber had a knot on her forehead. She asked what happened, and David said when Amber got out of the car, she ran down the sidewalk. He yelled her name and she turned and fell off the curb, hitting her head on the curb. The next day, Christina left for about two hours, going to her apartment to get clothes for Amber. When she returned to David's, she found Amber in bed, with small abrasions on her face, her face swollen, and her lips cracked. 
She asked what happened, and Amber said she fell. Christina asked David, who said he had laid the girls down for a nap, but Amber jumped up and ran outside. She tripped down the front steps, landing face first. Christina berated David because she had told him several times to keep the front door locked. Christina called her mother Joan and asked if she needed to take Amber to the doctor. But Joan just advised keeping an eye on her. If she started vomiting, then she should take her. On the afternoon of April 11th, Amber climbed up on the seat of her big wheel, then fell, hitting the handlebars with her abdomen. Amber ran a slight fever the next few days and had diarrhea, but Christina felt like it was from a stomach bug David had recently contracted. On Sunday, April 12th, Christina accompanied Jeannie to a conference in Atlanta that had been scheduled for months. Once again, she left Amber with David. On the way home, she asked Jeannie if she should take Amber to the hospital, and Jeannie cautioned her to watch for behavioral changes or irregular breathing. The next day, Christina and David talked about taking Amber to the hospital because her bruising appeared to be worsening, but David warned Christina that Child Protective Services might take her away. Christina just watched Amber all day and observed no changes in her behavior. On April 14, 1992, Christina went to work in Jeannie's office to pay for some shoes and ribbon to match Amber's dress. She left Amber with David in his trailer, knowing she would get more done without Amber in the office. Christina watched Amber settle onto David's lap with a book, then left for work. She was there for about six hours before telling Jeannie goodbye and driving back to David's. Not long after Christina left, David called the office and told Jeannie he could not get Amber to wake up. Jeannie thought he was overreacting and said that Christina would be home soon. When she got to David's, he came outside to tell her he couldn't get Amber to wake up. They put Amber in the car and raced to the hospital. Christina attempted CPR on Amber before screaming at David to stop the car so she could call Jeannie. She frantically explained what was going on and Jeannie assured her she would meet her at the hospital. When they got to the hospital, Christina ran inside with Amber, screaming that her baby was not breathing. A nurse took Amber and put her on a stretcher, wheeling her into a room, where she was worked on by multiple physicians and nurses. Once Amber was out of her arms, Christina started screaming at David, what happened? To which he just replied, I'm sorry, repeatedly. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day, which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health, like Bee Soothe Cough Syrup, the truly clean cough syrup that helps you get back on your feet. I try as much as possible to keep my voice healthy by using Bee Soothe for throat and immunity support. And the flavor is so much better than your standard cough syrup. It's naturally powered by nature's most powerful immune supporters, pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. But Bee Soothe cough syrup isn't the only beekeeper's product I love. My family is obsessed with Bee Lixer brain fuel, 
It helps to naturally beat brain fog, find your flow, and deliver your A-game. We all take one shot first thing in the morning to stay energized, on task, and focused all day. So, are you ready to upgrade your medicine cabinet? This amazing cough syrup always sells out quickly. So, don't delay. Get yours today. Check out Beekeepers Naturals to try Bee Soothe Cough Syrup and discover other clean remedies your family will love. You can save 15% on your first order today by going to beekeepernaturals.com slash true crime. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E to get 15% off. Meet your new medicine cabinet with Beekeepers Naturals. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Before long, a nurse came into the waiting area and told Christina that Amber was gone. Christina hysterically demanded to be taken to Amber, so she was led to her child, lying in a hospital bed with various tubes and wires attached to her. She was not given much time with Amber before being taken to the police department for questioning. She was questioned for a while, then taken to her and Amber's apartment so police could search it. Christina changed clothes while there. Then they drove her back to the police department, where they read her her Miranda rights. She asked if she needed an attorney, and they said no, claiming it was a formality. Officers had Christina write her statement, believing she was covering up for David. She insisted she was not, but she was arrested and charged with cruelty to children. Christina was questioned for 11 hours. She was later told, the state would pursue murder charges against her. Christina called Joan and requested Amber be buried in her Easter dress. Christina was not allowed to attend the funeral, but given a few minutes with Amber after she was prepared for burial. 
She was not allowed to touch Amber, but gave her a kiss before being taken back to jail. During questioning, investigators asked Christina if she and David engaged in anal sex. They also asked her if she allowed David to molest Amber, or if this was done without her knowledge. She denied he had ever assaulted her or abused Amber. Investigators questioning David seemed to take David's side, saying they believed David was the type of person who would help a child in distress, reassuring him that they understood his fear over taking Amber to the doctor and that they would get him some help. Investigators did tell David Amber had been sodomized based on an examination by the emergency room doctor. They then questioned him about his and Christina's sex life as well. The implication was that Christina and David's sexual deviancy led to Amber's abuse. David was arrested at the hospital and knew he was a suspect from the beginning. He did tell investigators that Amber fell while solely in his care, but he never hit Amber, except for an occasional spanking just to her bottom. He said Christina spanked her far more regularly and that Christina got frustrated rather easily with Amber. David said he was the only one who said they should take Amber to the hospital, and Christina was the one who said she was afraid Child Protective Services would take Amber away from her. However, the social worker who helped Christina transition from Ohio to Georgia said she couldn't believe Christina would have been afraid of that since she had a good relationship with social services. Moreover, they had never threatened to take Amber away from her. Investigators speculated that Christina had beaten Amber before leaving for work. They searched her apartment and found a belt that seemed to correspond to a mark on Amber's cheek. Investigators spoke to numerous individuals trying to develop character evidence against David and Christina. They also contacted Child Protective Services in Ohio, looking into past allegations against Christina. Years later, it was determined that there were three complaints against Christina, and they were unsubstantiated. David and Christina were both charged with murder and cruelty to children. The residents of Carroll County turned against Christina almost immediately. One wrote a letter to the paper saying, My body felt numb as I tried to imagine the horror that this innocent child must have felt as her own mother allegedly participated in her cruel and violent death. It offends me greatly to know that part of my tax money is going to defend and house heathens in a nice new air-conditioned building as punishment for a heinous crime such as this. This dislike and condemnation for Christina came in part because she was an outsider to the small community. Another reason is because one of her neighbors paid young girls to dance topless while he videotaped them. Christina, needing to make money, agreed to this and appeared in a few of his videos. In one of them, she was sitting on the couch next to her neighbor when Amber toddled into the scene. Christina quickly jumped up and dragged Amber to another room where she spanked her. Christina was then branded as a child abuser and a slut. One of the investigators on the case later told a writer, I looked at her as more guilty because she was her mother. She was the person on this earth that was supposed to protect her. And if he was doing this to her baby and she knew it, then it was her responsibility as her mother to get her out of there. She's right where she needs to be. While awaiting trial, Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment about Christina's supernatural experiences when she was a teenager. This also led many people to believe that she was guilty, 
thinking that she had used her telekinetic powers to harm Amber. After the airing of the Unsolved Mysteries episode, a man named John Riggle took interest in Christina's case. He wrote to her and told her he believed that she was innocent, and the two began exchanging letters. John drove in a camper van from Texas to Georgia, where he parked close to the jail Christina was in. He visited Christina nearly every week. He began his own investigation and obtained documents such as the coroner's report. He eventually asked Christina to marry him, and although she was not attracted to him, she told him she would think about it. Christina did not have a lot of people in her life willing to help, and she didn't want to lose one who was working so diligently for her freedom. In the end, though, she had to tell him no, and in return, he sent her photographs of Amber's autopsy. Christina took the photographs to her counselor, who turned them over to the warden. She also had John barred from her visitors list and from sending her mail. Within a few months, John Riggle died from an unknown illness. Christina's attorney visited her four times in two and a half years. He petitioned the court at one time, stating he had a conflict due to the other 88 cases he was handling across the state. Despite assurances that he would prove her innocence, her attorney did very little to assist her. Finally, Christina was given a trial date of October 31, 1994. Just days before her trial, Christina took a polygraph exam and passed it. However, the next day, her attorney arrived at the jail and told her it was a terrible idea for her to go to trial. He cited the photographs as his reasoning, the picture of Amber with the welt on her face and Christina's belt held up next to it was particularly damning. Her attorney further warned her that if she went to trial and was found guilty, she would likely be executed. Her attorney suggested she take an Alford plea, which had been established in 1970 by the U.S. Supreme Court. This allows defendants to plead guilty to an offense while maintaining their innocence. These are usually taken to avoid a death penalty. Christina, without consulting any family members or having anyone present, stood before a judge and pled guilty to murder by maliciously causing cruel and excessive physical pain and failing to seek proper medical attention. She also pleaded guilty to a charge of aggravated assault. Her attorney said that he thought his client was innocent, but the Alford plea was the best choice. Christina was 25 years old when she signed the paperwork condemning her to life in prison. She was also heavily medicated on antidepressants. David Heron's trial began in January of 1995. Under questioning, he admitted to putting Amber in a bathtub by herself. The district attorney said he wanted to know what Amber was doing in the tub by herself, and David replied, well, I mean, surely you didn't want me to get in the tub with her, which the DA did not think was funny. The medical examiner stated that Amber died of blunt force trauma that would have resulted in a rapid deterioration, but would not have taken hours for the symptoms to have occurred. The medical examiner said the injury did not occur three to four days before. After a week-long trial, David Heron was found not guilty of the murder charge and guilty on a charge of failing to seek medical treatment. He was given a sentence of 20 years in prison and served just a little over 19 years. Christina is still in prison in Georgia. She has been up for parole a few times, but it has been declined each time. 
While in prison, she came to the attention of a Dutch photographer who has advocated for her release. Many attorneys have been involved with her case over the years. At one point, Christina attempted to take her own life by cutting her throat. There has been a little good news for Christina in prison. Her biological family was located, and they made contact with her. Her biological mother had died some years before, but Christina has a younger sister, a niece, and a grandniece, who are all now giving Christina much-needed emotional support. Christina was especially excited because they had been looking for her too. Christina has never wavered in declaring her innocence since the death of her precious daughter. This is one reason her parole has been denied, since most parole boards want inmates to admit their guilt and express regret for their actions. Christina had another parole review in November 2020. It was again denied. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. 